these ideas that black children should not be under the supervision of their parents, but they should be forced to work for other people, for white people in particular, is something that comes from slavery and then from the apprenticeship system where emancipated, free black children were taken by judges and put back to labor for their former enslavers. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Caitlin Becker, and I'm a social worker and a member of the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work, NAASW. We're a collection of social workers from around the country practicing in a variety of settings, academia, research, public defense, organizing, youth, and policy work. We are social workers who recognize the ways in which the communities this profession says they serve are targeted, harassed, policed, and criminalized by various systems. We also recognize that in many of these systems, both historically and today, it is social workers who are doing the policing. NAASW seeks to contribute to a dialogue around abolitionist values and the social work profession with the goal of inspiring both reflection and action. Our audience tonight is likely lots of social workers, people impacted by social work, or people who work with social workers. Thank you for being here tonight, whoever you are, to engage in this critical dialogue around social work and family policing. I know that we are all tuning in from places all around the country. I'm in the Bronx and want to begin by acknowledging that I'm on the unceded land of the Munsee Lenape peoples. I ask that you join me in acknowledging the Munsee Lenape community, their elders, both past and present, as well as future generations. The building that I'm sitting in was founded on the exclusions and erasures of many indigenous peoples, including those on whose land, whose land I'm on. This acknowledgement demonstrates a commitment to beginning the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism. Tonight, we are honored, truly honored, to be joined by two giants in the field of abolition, neither of whom need any introduction. But just in case this is the first time you've had the privilege to be in their presence, Joyce McMillan is the founder and executive director of JMAC for Families. JMAC works to abolish the current punitive so-called child welfare system 
and to strengthen the systems of supports that keep families and communities together. Dr. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of Africana Studies, Law, and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Roberts is the author of several books that should be required reading for anyone entering the social work profession, including her most recent book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families, and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. We'll ask that you imagine that there's a fireplace between Joyce and Professor Roberts this evening, as we envision this as a fireside chat that we are just lucky to get to listen in on. I'll chime in to offer a few questions throughout the evening and invite you all to add your questions to the chat. We'll collect those and hope to save time at the end to elevate some of those questions to Professor Roberts and Joyce. So Joyce, I'll turn the mic over first to you um, to begin our conversation between you and Professor Roberts. Um, and I thought a, a, a opening question that might be useful, what brings you to this conversation about social work, abolition, and family policing? Wow, I get to start that, eh? So what brings me is one, my lived experience, um, knowing that social workers didn't help, understanding that reform hasn't changed anything and my admiration for Dr. Roberts who wrote books regarding this very topic before I was ever impacted or understood the harms that this system brings to families and communities. your turn, Ms. Roberts. I could answer the same question. Oh, I thought that was just for you. <laughs> or you could just start talking about why you wrote that book in 1997 that got me going. Oh, you're going all the way back to Killing the Black Body. That was 1997. And that has something to do with it. I, I do want to say, though, that uh, Ms. Joyce has this habit of continuing to call me Professor Roberts. I've told her many times to stop and to call me Dorothy. And if she's going to insist on calling me Professor Roberts, I'm going to call her Queen Joyce. <laughs> so uh, take your pick, take your pick. But uh, part of the reason I'm here is because Queen Joyce is here and I want to be wherever she is. I think she is the fiercest leader of this abolitionist movement. I love her. I love her work. I love her honesty. I love her commitment. I love the way in which she just tells it like it is. And uh, I have been so inspired by her. Uh, and I want to continue working with her. And so knowing that she was going to be here, I want to be in this fireside chat with her. Uh, so it's interesting that she mentioned going back to 1997, because that is kind of the beginning of how I got here. Uh, in I published a book called Killing the Black Body in in 1997. Of course, I was doing research on it before, but it was about the punishment and regulation and disparagement of black mothers. Uh, in particular, I was focusing on the regulation of black women's childbearing in the United States from the slavery era until 
the 20th century when I was writing. And that's when I discovered that although it wasn't going to be part of that book, I was focusing there on the criminalization of Black mothers who at the time were being prosecuted for being pregnant and using drugs. I discovered that there were many more Black mothers, thousands and thousands of them, who were having their newborn babies taken from them based on a positive drug test. And I was shocked. I had not encountered the child welfare system, so-called child welfare system before. And I was in Chicago and was just shocked by the level of intense involvement in Black neighborhoods and the way in which people weren't up in arms about it. It was so obviously a racist system. And uh, so that's what led me to write my next book, Shattered Bonds. And uh, I, I worked on a lot of reform efforts. I can speak to the failures of reform because I have been involved in them, including spending nine years, nine whole years on an expert panel that was supposed to implement a class action settlement in Washington state where a judge had declared the state was violating the constitutional rights of children in foster care. And I learned from that that people weren't interested in hearing what their parents had to say, uh, what their families had to say. I, I fought while I was on that panel to get parents involved and nobody wanted to hear from them. Uh, that was an indication right there that something was wrong with this reform process. But we certainly couldn't fix the system. And over the years, I have come to realize that it cannot be fixed. And I've been inspired like people like Ms. Joyce and others who are at the forefront of a new movement. You know, it, it's existed for a long time, but it's now coming together. As a recognized, you know, I, I, I'd just like to ask you, how does it feel to know that the books that you have written have been so affirming to parents like myself mm -hmm. um, prior to knowing of who you are and your writings? I never felt affirmed in what I experienced and knowing that it didn't help and knowing that it created barriers to. Um, pipeline me from one system to the other and knowing that it created barriers to prevent my family from reunifying and to create like a track record that would always make me subject to further investigations. Mm -hmm. um, we've never heard as parents someone speak or write the way that you have um, in the history of your writings. Mm -hmm. and. Today, you are the true queen of <laughs> child welfare, right? And of I'm abolishing it, please say that. <laughs> that clear. Yeah, of the family regulations. The of family regulations. Yeah, let's make it correct. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Language is everything, right? <laughs> in case there was confusion. Everything. But you are the true queen in this movement. And I just feel so honored 
um, to learn from you, to feel affirmed by you, to share space with you, to have your support, and to be motivated, most importantly, to be unpredictable in how I approach my work. Well, everything you just said, I feel about you. And so I feel like I could not have written any of my books, especially Killing the Black Body, Shattered Bonds and Torn Apart, without engaging with the people who have been harmed by these systems. How could I dare to write anything without it? The reason I could write Shattered Bonds is because I got to know Black mothers in Chicago who were fighting to get their children back. And it was their stories that gave me the knowledge of what the system is really about and what it's designed to do. You know, it's interesting, even back then in this would have been in the 1990s, the mothers I met with and I would meet them in a church basement in uh, Englewood, a neighborhood in Chicago, and they were just trying to support each other and survive this system and get their children back. But they used words like this is a form of slavery. They are kidnapping our children. You know, the kinds of ideas that help me understand what this system was really about. And so for me, I I cannot even pretend to write what I do on my own. I'm inspired by people who are fighting to abolish these systems, even before they had that language or before I had the language of abolition. That's what they were trying to do. That's what they were working to do. And the most important thing for me and my work, the most inspiring thing, the most gratifying thing is to know that my books give any kind of support, uh, language, um, documentation, right? Analysis to the people who are being so harmed by this family policing system. And that's why I wrote Torn Apart. And that is the best possible compliment about it I could get. So I I appreciate that. And I continue to be inspired and know that what I'm doing is right. You know, the for me, the worst thing would be to write something, put it out there that is harmful. And you know that there are people now we're getting a backlash, right, of well, it's both right wing and some liberal people who are saying, oh, abolition is, you know, it's going to harm people and we, we're not ready for it. I just gave a talk a couple nights ago where someone in the audience said, well, America is never going to have radical change. So we have to have this system to keep children safe. And I know that that's not true. Now, how do I know that's not true? It's not from the studies, you know, even though there are lots of studies that, that support that. 
It's from people like you who have experienced it and know that it has to be abolished. And I am not going to ignore that. That's what lets me know the direction we should go in. And I think we we work with each other. You know, there's certain certain skills that I have and also luxuries that I have as a university professor, right? Um, and the the ability to be able to write books, you know, to take the time to do this analysis. And I, you know, I think I have a skill at it, but I don't have the same skills that you have, Queen Joyce. And so, (laughs) you know, I think we have to, we work together. We mutually support each other and we can't do it on our own, but collectively we're so much more powerful. And that's why I I, I, I don't want to be the kind of academic or researcher that's disconnected from a movement that's trying to implement what I want to achieve. I, I can only do it as part of a movement. So I really appreciate what you have to say uh, and your, your kind words about my work. I, it and your your honest words and your your willingness to tell me <laughs> i appreciate that a lot it's it's like a bible to me they're words that i can live by because i know and feel and have experienced the truth of them right yeah. this is not um fiction right yes yes this, this is non-fiction this is truth oh. like never before. And so it, it's moving and, it, and it, it fosters the energy to create a movement. Um, the, the strangest thing to me is how this system has flown under the radar for decades and how people continue to say they're protecting children as if they're blind to the outcomes. They're blind to the data. They're blind to the children aging out. Those who have failed at a school because of all the transfers from schools and homes and um, the mental stress on them that has caused them to develop mental health issues. The substances they pick up to try to mitigate what they're feeling from the mental health. Um, The mistreatment. Right. And and that's saying it likely in these homes, these stranger homes um, that they put them, they place them to live on on contract. Right. What is the difference between contracting a child into a home and straight selling them, which they do on the OCFS website here in New York, which is another story. Right. Under Heart Gallery, they sell kids. Right. Some of the children wear little hearts on their chest on the pictures that says on hold. Why would you not want to abolish a system that does this? We want they run around touting, protecting children. What are children being protected from? No one can tell me that. But I know myself. I don't need them to tell me they're being protected from success because poverty, pimping poverty is the way that America survives. Pimping poverty is the equivalent to slavery. It creates free labor, right? Because if you are poor, then you end up working for a HRA check, 
which pays you less than minimum wage. But then we are utilizing machinery to replace all the jobs that you could have received for a minimum wage salary. There's no more cashiers. There's no more gas station attendants. There are so many toll. I used to be a toll collector. Toll booths have disappeared. And that wasn't even a minimum wage. That was a good paying job. But when you look at what communities their tax are on, you have to look with a broad scope. And then it comes down like, like a triangle for who is impacted, right? And so we start collecting like a whirlpool all of the black bodies, toll collectors, those type of city and state jobs are jobs that black people disproportionately um, had, really. It was like, get a city job and you were doing well. You were guaranteed to have a retirement fund and 401k and, and benefits and dental and all of these things. And they start eliminating those jobs for the black middle class Right. And and forcing more people into poverty and in poverty are the people who are surveilled more by all of the systems and each of these systems lead to the child welfare system, as they choose to call it. Right. Um, Because it is the family regulation system. It is policing of black bodies. And. So with all of that being said, I, I guess one of my questions, uh, how did you come up with the titles to your book, um, the so appropriate titles and how they just kind of flow into one another? Mm-hmm. Um, do you look at, and I'm sure you do, but I'm going to let you answer how you see it, because sometimes I see things in like this map visionary way, right? And how do you see things when you write about killing the black body? And, 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 and for me, right, I, I hear that. And then I see ACS, CPS across the state going out into the field, right? Remember when, when black folk was on a plantation, they were in the field, right? Yes. And so I, I look at all of these things. I look at the backdoor mechanism of the prerequisite that foster care is to send children to prison. It's not a pipeline. It is a prerequisite. Yes. Just looking at how all of it is interconnected and and how we change the narrative to create the change that we want to see. Okay. I start taking notes because (laughs) you covered so much. I'm not going to remember everything to uh, respond to what this brilliant woman has to say. So you asked me about the titles to my books, but I just want to respond to some of the things you said and, and highlight some of them because you were shooting out so much wisdom. I want to make sure everybody got it, okay? Because there was so much there. So you were talking about the harms to children and how is it that people can support this system when they know there are these harms? They are well documented. First of all, anybody working in the system knows about them. They're just, they're lying if they pretend that they have not seen this. They all have seen it. Just like when I when I first started going to family court just to see what was going on, uh, 
when I first became aware of the family policing system in Chicago, and I could see that the only people in the court before the judge were black mothers and their children. That was it. I never saw anybody else but black people in the court. Now, how can you sit there day after day as a judge, as a caseworker, as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, uh, public defender, and not be aware that this must be a racist system? I, I was just, you know, how, what, there are no books on this? It, this doesn't make any sense to me. That's why I wrote Shattered Bond. So it's people are well aware of it. But what they are doing is discounting that harm. So, for example, well, there's some recent research studies that are coming out that are saying, oh, these abolitionists are exaggerating. Uh, there's some good that happens in the system. You know, or they try to say, well, actually, black children aren't that much worse off than white children are in the system, but they they ignore the fact that there are many, many, many children and their parents and other family caregivers who are grievously harmed. You know, they, they will point to, oh, well, the statistics show that some of the children are better off than if they stayed at home. But guess what? There's statistics that show that many children are worse off than if they stayed at home. Or uh, they ignore the fact that children are killed in foster homes and they're killed, especially in these so-called therapeutic residential centers. There are many cases of reports of children. Who have been, children like they're in prison. They, they are like prisons. Mm -hmm. they're, they are like prisons. And in fact, many of them have these so-called juvenile delinquents, children, you know, who have been judged to be delinquent who shouldn't be in there either, but they're in the same facilities as the children who are declared to be dependent. And they're, they're violent places where no child should be. Okay, they know this, but they just ignore it. I got an email from an angry person because I wrote a piece in the Washington Post called Five Myths about the child welfare system. Yeah. And uh, this woman wrote me a long, angry email. And she said, um, or maybe it was a text. I don't know. I'm getting them from in text. I'm getting, I, I mean, tweet, tweet, tweets on Twitter by email, you know, these angry responses saying, oh, you're ignoring all the good that it does. And my response, you're ignoring all the bad that it does. And literally she said, um, oh, you said in that Washington Post piece that a third of teenagers uh, in foster care uh, spend time in institutional settings. And she said, that means two thirds don't. Why didn't you mention the truth? I'm like, isn't it bad enough that a third do? Exactly. I should. They point, it's the most, I just think it's sickening, sickening. I think it's sick. I think it's more than, it's sickening to us, but it's sick of them. Yes. So, even like it, it's, this system, the family policing system is one of the only systems where I see where we train and I'm going to utilize the word train, not teach, right? Because there's a difference between training and teaching. You train dogs, mm -hmm. right? You teach people. Mm -hmm. But they readily use the word train in their world of child welfare 
parents to work with or within the system. No other sector do we encourage people to work with the same people has, who has caused them such harm and damaged them so yeah. deeply. Yeah. Only in this system do we do that. And I just think it's really a very sick thing to come up with the idea that it's good to have people work under the umbrella, encourage it and finance it. Um, here in New York, ACS right now has a RFP that I believe they just completed um, around this whole parent advocacy thing, right? So they're looking to gather people who they've harmed and give them a little hush money, right? Because otherwise these people are not employable because you who caused them harm, put them on a registry that prevents them from being employed. So now they're their only option of employment and they bring them in to further abuse them. That's sick. That is a real sick, careful, deliberate, malicious, hateful thinking. Yes, I agree. That is sick when you take the people you have caused suffering to and force them back in, you know, under the guise that you're helping them. That that is one of the sickest things about this whole system is that it it has this veneer of we're helping you when in fact we're harming you. At least the prison system admits it's punishing people. You know, it's, it's a sick place too, but at least it admits it's punishing people. When you pretend you are helping people, you can do anything to them, anything to them. And, you know, I was going to respond to some of the things you were saying about going back into the field, um, the forced labor and how it mirrors enslaving black people and and forcing them to labor for white enslavers or for corporations or for the state. And these ideas that black children should not be under the supervision of their parents, but they should be forced to work for other people, for white people in particular, is something that comes from slavery and then from the apprenticeship system where emancipated, free Black children were taken by judges and put back to labor for their former enslavers. So a lot of what you're saying, we can trace directly back to slavery and then its afterlives in this idea of forced labor, also extracting money from children in foster care. That's another harm. Yeah, these departments. Social security, and the other financial incomes that they may have to care for them, they take it. Mm -hmm. It's like the same thing is happening in the adult foster system, right? Where they identify an elderly person who may live alone and then say that they're not capable of taking care of themselves. They send adult um, services out, extract that person from their home, put them in some city-run, dilapidated, 
Okay. Um, nursing home, sell their property, everything in it, and that person dies and goes to Potter's Field. Yeah, yeah. There's so many ways in which this racial capitalist society extracts what little money impoverished people have, especially impoverished Black people from, you know, the whole communities. Uh, there's a professor at Princeton named uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor who writes about predatory inclusion into the banking and mortgage systems where Black people were treated the same way, brought into these exploitative systems to extract their money and other resources from them. And that's what happens to children in the foster industrial complex. So that's another really important point. And all of it is to blame the people who are harmed the most by structural inequalities, structural racism, poverty, discrimination against people with disabilities, including people who use drugs, you know, uh, sexism, you know, all of these hierarchies that actually cause the most harm to children and then blame their parents and family caregivers for that harm as a way of continuing these exploitative, unjust systems uh, and uh, pretend that oh, we're really solving the problem by taking children away from their families. And then that trauma is gets ignored over and over. It, it's so infuriating to read this, these kind of backlash studies and, and comments that are coming out against abolition by ignoring the harm. <laughs> they act as if it doesn't occur when they know that these harms occur. And it's been a, a very a powerful way of maintaining this. So, you know, Ms. Joyce, when you said, how can this continue? How can people continue to support this system? This, the propaganda around it is so strong, but also a lot of people want the status quo. They're invested in it. They're invested in it. When you say invested, I look at Casey Foundation, mm-hmm. Annie E, and all the rest of the Casey's full of shit, right? Basically, because they have the most money of any foundation that I know. Mm-hmm. They have so much money, they're broken down into different segments, right? Different, <laughs> different grandchildren or whoever distributes the money. But most of their money goes to support systems always talking about they want to change. Now, if you were smart enough to make the type of money you made to have a foundation the size of the Casey Foundation, then you have to know you don't invest in failing things. (laughs) On Wall Street, never have we gave someone more money to get their shit together. We said it ain't together, you ain't getting nothing else until you fix it. Right. You can't even go on the Nasdaq if you're not successful. So what is this thing that they're trying to sell to me that they don't understand? And what they're doing is good work and trying to fix it. No, they're part of the problem because you know why they have all that money? Because that money comes from a long history. That money wasn't made in a year. 
That money wasn't made in 10 years. It was made over generations. And when we go back generations, we start looking at free labor. A lot of that money was made from free labor and they want to keep the status quo. And Casey, I'm calling you out for it. <laughs> and I'm calling out the rest of the foundations because you guys need to start supporting the community. If you got money to give away, give it to the people who need the money, not those who are taking your money to create more harm and make it more difficult for people that look like me to live. Mm -hmm. That's such an important point, Ms. Joyce, that we cannot keep supporting a system that is, like you said, failing, causing devastating harms. The idea that we you know, if you recognize the harms, that then we need to put more money into it to fix it. That's the stupidest thing ever. Doesn't make sense. But that's so often what the response is. I'm telling you, this is a deep sickness in the way <laughs> people approach this. So uh, they they find out, oh, the system failed in some way. Uh, it harmed somebody. Oh, a child was killed in the system. Uh, or you know, whether it's a child killed at home, which gets all the headlines and national news, they don't, you know, all the harm that's caused by family policing gets hardly any attention. But if the child is killed in the home or killed in foster care, the response in either case is, oh, we need to give more money to case workers so they can investigate more homes. It's it's nonsensical. This means that the system has failed. And how many times do we have to see that it has failed to protect children and in fact affirmatively harms children and their families before we decide we have to just dismantle it? It cannot be fixed. Putting more money into a harmful, destructive system doesn't make sense. But the twisted logic around it causes people to think that that is logical, but it isn't at all. And you're right. We would never do that with other kinds of failing systems, you know, in the corporate world, except my only difference would be there are those multi-billion dollar bailouts that they make to corporations, but they won't spend that kind of money to bail out children and families that need it. Uh, so uh, however you want to look at it, it is a system that instead of just providing the resources, including cash and community-based resources that people need, that would actually meet people's needs, they spend billions and billions of dollars on taking children away, investigating families, and maintaining them with other people that they're willing to pay to take care of children instead of their own families. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, A Revolutionary for Our Time, The Walter Rodney Story by Leo Zelik. Walter Rodney was a scholar, working class militant, and revolutionary from Guyana. Strongly influenced by Marxist ideas, and living through numerous socialist experiments in the 1960s and 1970s, he remains central to radical pan-Africanist thought. In this book, the first full-length study of Rodney's life, Leo Zelig critically considers Rodney's contribution to Marxist theory and history, 
and the contemporary significance of his work. As Olufemi O. Taiwo puts it, through exacting research, exacting presentation, and careful analysis, Leo Zelig offers a remarkable contribution to radical thought and practice worthy of Walter Rodney's legacy. Find A Revolutionary for Our Time at haymarketbooks.org. And, and, and here, here's the thing that gets me. So, of course, I have a conversation with ACS. I haven't called out the Prince of Child Welfare yet, Jess Danhauser, right? But I know from conversations with Jess Danhauser prior to him becoming the commissioner of ACS that he has a clear understanding of the harms of the system, right? Now, I don't want to put it all on him. Maybe he has a good heart. Maybe he really wants to make change. But once you enter that machine, it's not up to you alone. And the vast majority of people are not going along with you to create change because they believe that creating change means they don't have a job. When they should be saying we can keep our job and change what we do so that we actually support and help families. Right. Maybe we become resources to the family and get paid. Maybe we become the person who picks a child up from school. Like there are things that you can do for the community versus causing the community harm. But I say all of that to say because ACS is not supporting family knowing their rights, which is really problematic to me because if you are looking to keep me from knowing my rights, then that means you are seeking to violate my rights. Other than that, me knowing my rights wouldn't matter to you. You understand? But then they want to cover it up by using the word safety. Yeah. Ah, that's the magic word. So children are not going to be safe. But I need to say for everyone on this call, I don't know who's on here and I don't know who's heard this before, but I need everyone to understand Parents knowing their right is should cannot be conflated with uh, agency doing their due diligence to ensure that a child is well, right? Because we should be concerned with a child's well-being, but they're never concerned with a child's well-being. They're concerned with who I am as a person. When when child officials came into my home, They asked for a urine test and I had a substance in my urine. That's my business as an adult. I never say what the substance is because I don't like this hierarchy drug thing. But the point is they never did anything that supported me or my children. They snatched my children out of the home, even though even though my children were well taken care of. And there was no evidence that I utilized anything in front of my children. Right. And they caused me to spiral my life in a downward way, right? Now, you don't want families to know their rights. Had I known my rights, I would have never taken that test and my children would have never been unnecessarily removed. But more important than that, it's our Fourth Amendment right. It is our constitutional right. When would you go into a store, buy a garment, a shoe, a washing machine or anything and have them tell you, we will tell you your rights after you've made your purchase. We'll tell you what the return policy is after you've made your purchase. ACS in New York City wants to come into people's house and after entering their home, they want to tell them what their rights are. Now they're saying they need to come in first because there's a child that may be in danger. I want y'all to follow me now. But here's the thing, the safety thing, right? 
when a person calls the state central registry to report a concern about a child and or a family, the first thing they get is a recording that says, if this is an emergency, please hang up now and dial 911. That same person we are trusting to report a concern, right, does not hang up and call 911. They stay on the line and they get an operator from the New York State Office of Children and Family Services, the state agency that um, oversees the child protection offices throughout the state of New York. They speak to a live operator and that operator takes their complaint, their concern, whatever you want to address it as, and she herself, he himself does not hang up and call 911. They do not deem it to be an emergency, but suddenly when it gets down to the field office, where they go round up the people who could not talk to their therapist or their teacher and report their own concerns because they have this sick mentality where they're gonna surveil us instead, make us try to hide what our concerns are so they can hunt us out just like they used to do during slavery when we ran away. Now listen, now come on, follow me. So now they get to your door and they say, we have to come in because we don't know if this is an emergency. You know that it's not an emergency because it just went through two test runs that where it was verified not to be an emergency. Take your ass down to the court and get a court order. The reason they want to enter people's homes without that court order is because then they get to operate in the shadows of the judicial system. Mm -hmm. And they try to make families fear going to court. They say, you don't want to go to court. If you don't do this, I'll take you to court. But where you want to go is to court because then you have somebody holding them accountable to what the letter of the law is, especially if you got a good defender services working with you, like Brooklyn Defenders, Bronx Defenders. Mm -hmm. Neighborhood Defender Services of Harlem, CFR, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, community Legal Services in Philadelphia. Shout out to my local family defenders. Ab- absolutely. So you you wanna, in, in my opinion, be in court. They create all these backdoor mechanisms without judicial oversight. Oh, come to a child safety conference so that what we didn't extract in information from you in your home, we can do so in our office. They make you come to their office for them to interrogate you just a little more under the guise of creating a safety plan for your child. Don't go. You already got an attorney. You're already in court. Stay away from them. They are the prosecutors. You would never sit down with a prosecutor in a criminal case and try to convince them that you didn't do what they're accusing you of. You wait for your day in court. Keep your mouth shut. When ACS, CPS across this nation investigate you, they don't have the time or the energy to run around talking to all the people you think they're talking to. Child, they are only talking to you. If you keep your mouth shut, they will have nothing to say about you. The teacher, I don't care if they got your school's name. Your teacher don't know you. She doesn't know what happens in your home. Only you can expose and give them something to latch on to. Stay quiet. And know your rights. You don't have to let them in. There is a Fourth Amendment right. And they will threaten to call the police. And when the police come, you ask them, where's their warrant? Mm -hmm. You say there is no safety issue. There are no indicators that says that there's an emergency happening in my home. So you, Mr. Officer, get to go get a court order too. Yeah, I think a really important point you're making 
Joyce, is how the child protection, so-called child protection, family policing system can have greater powers than even criminal law enforcement. Because like you're saying, the police know they're supposed to get a warrant and the public knows they're supposed to get a warrant. Now, that doesn't mean that the police always follow our constitutional rights, right? That we know that's not true, but at least they don't have this blanket exemption to the constitution that caseworkers have and are and allowed on, as you're pointing out, this idea of child protection or safety. This idea that a child is always at you know an imminent harm in the home has allowed them to run roughshod over our rights. And I think a lot of people might have been surprised when you say the Fourth Amendment applies. They may think that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. It does. The Fourth Amendment applies to any government official who wants to enter your home. You do not have to give consent. And there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, we we get with a law professor. Huh? Say it again, Lord Professor. Yeah, there's a reason that we have constitutional rights. We recognize that. Uh, nobody says, oh, we should do, well, most people wouldn't say, we should abolish the Fourth Amendment to allow the police to come into everybody's home if they want to. You know, that would not get support from most people. And yet, effectively, it's been abolished in the realm of child protection. Now, let me point out that well, and, but I want to emphasize that the caseworkers not only work hand in hand with the police, like you pointed out, they'll bring police officers to the home. And in my book, Torn Apart, I talk about some of the even lethal cases that have happened when police show up. <laughs> Thank you, Joy. <laughs> when police show up. They get now, now they can ride the caseworker's coattails and get into the house because the caseworker has not only this effective exemption that they've been allowed, but also has the threat of taking your children away. So I'm so glad you gave people the truth. I, I want to mention that in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania recently issued a decision holding that. Caseworkers cannot enter homes without a warrant. They have to go to court, show probable cause, especially when it's based on an anonymous tip. And I want to I want to mention the facts of that case. If we have time, Joyce, is that okay? And Caitlin, because it it shows so many aspects of this. A wonderful activist in Philadelphia named Jennifer Benetch, who advocated against homelessness and and for secure housing. She's a housing rights activist, and she was instrumental in the encampment in Philadelphia that won the right to housing uh, in a certain part of Philadelphia. And she recognized the connection between the lack of housing and the separation of families. Uh, She protested in front of the Philadelphia Housing Authority. And during one of her protests, somebody anonymously reported her to CPS on the child abuse hotline. 
and said that a woman was protesting for eight hours in front of the housing authority. And he didn't know, he or she, who was anonymous, didn't know if she had fed her children during that time. Okay, totally, you know, ambiguous, amorphous, nothing to it. And also very likely that somebody was just retaliating against her for her protest. They looked up her address and sent a caseworker to her house later, you know, after all this had happened uh, and wanting to come in her house and she wouldn't let them in her house. She knew she knew her rights. Uh, Then they came back with a police officer trying to terrorize her into letting them in. She still wouldn't let them in. And they went to court. They got a judge to issue an order to allow the the caseworker into her house. She took it all the way up to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, which ruled that they violated her constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court order violated her constitutional rights. And the court made it clear the Fourth Amendment applies to family policing. It applies to them just as much as it applies to law enforcement. And uh, they said that you have to show probable cause. And that means there's got to be some basis. You can't just invade somebody's home based on an anonymous tip that doesn't even make sense. You know, there's no support for it. You know, she may not have fed the child. There's no evidence backing that up. You could say that about anybody, right? Unless you see them actually feeding the child at the time. And then uh, it also, the home search had nothing to do with the allegations against her. There was no evidence in the home that would have told you whether she fed the child while she was engaging in a prior protest. And there has to be a nexus between the two. So the court made it clear you cannot, based on an anonymous tip, demand entry into someone's home. You have to go to court, show probable cause, and get a warrant, just like the police have to do. And this should be applied everywhere, and people should know this. I just want to say one other thing that uh, Ms. Benetch, uh passed away uh, in February of COVID complications. And uh, yeah, very tragically. And I want to lift up her name. I promised some of her comrades that every time I mention this case, I'm going to mention her and her activism. So I want to stay true to that. Yeah. When I first read that article, I mean, I read everything that was attached to it more than one time. And the thing that stood out to me is the probable cause if you go to court, which is one of the reasons, like I said, they want to avoid the judicial system. But most of these judges are sorry themselves, right? And so therefore, just because CPS asked, Child Protection Service asked, then they oblige and give it to them. But there is a legal standard and they're not abiding by the legal standard. It is not Um, the Administration of Children's Services, ACS alone, it is also the judges and everyone else who act in concert with their bad behavior. Mm -hmm. 
and, and violating people's rights. Because if the Administration for Children's Services don't know they're violating people's rights, which I kind of believe they don't know, because I think they are the stupidest people that walk this earth. ACS caseworkers are fucking idiots. Can I tell you that? Can I just say that out loud? Please. <laughs> I knew you'd get there, Joyce. I knew <laughs> to be a damn dog groomer, as long as they got a four-year degree in dog grooming or, or 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 digging flowers, they get to take the quick course at the Administration for Children's Services and become a damn case manager. Half of them don't even know what it is to be a family, what a family is, don't have children of their own, no concept of understanding of a child's needs, a family's needs, family dynamics. Anything yeah. that would make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Plus, and they're not social workers. Yeah, um, right. they dress themselves up to be social workers. They are caseworkers. They're caseworkers because they manage cases. They're not even capable of managing people, nor should they have to manage people. It's all just a convoluted, mixed up system made to confuse people so you don't really know what they're doing. But let me be the first to tell you, they're destroying families. That's what they're doing. Absolutely. And because they don't have proper training, not that that would help. I mean, we let's be clear, even, you know, whatever kind of training they have, however smart they are, even however well-intentioned they are, they're working in a system that is not giving them the resources they're that not smart. they're not smart. Don't even give them an if. They they are they are just flat out ignorant. They okay. come to your house because your teenage child doesn't come to school, right? And, right. and listen, that's a teenager's prerogative, not that parent supporting. But when they get to your house, um, um, Professor Dorothy, the 20, one of the questions they'll ask you is, do you have a boyfriend? What the hell does that have to do? At some point, you have to be smart enough to say to your own management team, why am I asking this question? Well, okay. Why are all the questions always yeah. the same across the board? Right. Why do I need to know if there's checking cabinets if the child is not going to school? Right. Like, do, how much money do you make? Do you have a job? What does any of that have to do with anything? I agree. I absolutely agree with that. My only point is, which you just referred to, so I think we agree on this, <laughs> is that they're being told, here's the list of things. This is what you have to do. Many of them have no experience that this may be their first job. They're young. They don't know what they're doing and they feel like they have to do what their supervisors are telling them to do. I'm just saying they're not. Oh, they should talk to my old supervisor professor so that he could tell them that I never listened. <laughs> He's so happy now that I do my own thing because he said, you're someone who should have always worked for yourself. I text him recently after I went to Harvard and I said, never let anyone make you manageable. Remain untamed. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you have to question authority. I agree. I absolutely agree. I'm just saying they don't do that. I That's know they don't because they're idiots. I'm saying anyone who takes instructions blanketly without questioning the significance or the reason behind it is an idiot. Okay, but but Joyce, don't you agree though that it they're still going to be told you have to do it. I mean, there it's very hard within the system to rebel against it. That's my That's only because point. listen, how many case managers they have? If they they have a union, they should be going to their union. 
right? They want to go to their union. To Their union, Anthony Wells, I tried to meet with him when we was pushing Miranda. And he was dancing all around like, yes, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He didn't want to meet. Then he's going to email me back and say that he's not going to meet because he don't like what I said about ACS on, on Twitter or someplace. I'm like, I say fuck ACS every day. And you were going to meet with me. Nothing's changed except you were just prolonging the inevitable that you were going to back out because you don't even know your job as a union leader. Your job as a union leader is to protect your employees not to ensure that they get into homes that's not your yeah. job yeah it's to protect their safety i was a union leader i know what union leaders do you okay. protect the safety of the employee on the job you don't you don't stand against a family knowing their rights because your worker needs to get into their home he's an idiot too well i called you an idiot today okay so <laughs> you're making a good point I mean, all your points are good, but you're, I think what you're pointing out though, is that there has to be collective action among caseworkers and social workers to disrupt what's going on. And, and maybe this is a good point for Caitlin to come in because <laughs> I know she wants us to talk about that. Because it's a lot, right? This is a fireside chat. Let's bring the fire because no, it's really true. They, yeah. they want to mistreat communities they want to mistreat parents, mistreat children, treat us like we're stupid by violating our rights, acting like the Fourth Amendment never existed for our communities, um, collecting data with questions and surveys that's not related, utilizing what's in your medicine cabinet that they shouldn't be privy to anyway against you. They're treating us like idiots. I like to say it out loud to them. You understand? Because everyone's not going to say to them they're an idiot. Yeah, but that's true. Who, whoever's causing that type of harm under the guise of only doing their job, something's wrong. I don't yeah. want a job that does that. Like, right. I get to pick and choose today what I do for a living. But you want to criminalize the sex worker because what she chooses to do to bring money in, but you'll do that to bring money in. And I really don't see the difference. That's, You're family of their heritage. Right. I, I absolutely agree. You have to decide where am I going to work? What am I going to do? Who am I with? Who am I with? Who am I behind? Who am I going to stand with? And that is a question of integrity and maybe uh, idiocy as well. But <laughs> I'll put it to integrity. That, uh, do you have integrity? Are you just going to bow down and do what you know is wrong under the excuse that my supervisor told me to do it? Right. Yeah, I agree. And with that's that. why they have health problems. Mm -hmm. Sleep at night. Yeah. Right. After you do some of the bad things they do to families, they can't rest. They they have a high level of high blood pressure, diabetes, overweight because they're eating out of frustration. Like they got the worst health issues there is and a high turnover rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like if black kids, if foster care was good, black kids would only get into what? Affirmative action, right? Excellent. And if this job was really doing what it was supposed to do and people was really helping like they say they help, they would never leave because who don't want to be a helper? Exactly. They'd be fulfilled and gratified. Absolutely. It's frustration and the, what would you call it? 
I'm trying to get away from it, calling them idiots. Only you already said it, Joyce. I want to mix it up a little bit. But the lack of integrity. I mean, that hurts your soul. Yeah, it does. Your soul. You but know. I'm just trying to agitate too. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> but it okay. So frustrating for okay. me. <laughs> that's all right, Joyce. Like I said at the beginning, you say it like it is. I, that's one of the things I love most about you. Caitlin, we're giving it to you, babe. Let's do some of those questions. Let's help the people in the chat. I appreciate this so much. And, you know, lots of questions are coming in from the chat. And so I'll start really building off the conversation that we're having right now, which is it's certainly caseworkers who are new to the field and following instructions. But it is also social workers who are causing great and particular harm Mm -hmm. in this system therapists and the managers at ACS and the child protective agencies who are the ones making the decisions. They have social work degrees. There's lots of social workers at every point of intervention in this system, and they are causing great harm. We are causing great harm, my profession. Um, and, And this is a social work audience. And so I just wanted to kind of offer that to both of you. What are the particular harms that social workers are playing um, at each point in this system? (laughs) That's a funny question because I know a social worker is asking, you know what you do wrong. Do you really need to ask me that, Caitlin? Go to the next question. You're not sitting right with you. Like, stop it. (laughs) I mean, I know, but I wonder if some of the social workers in the audience. Person who asked that question, a social worker, because if they're a social worker, they know what they're doing wrong. Like, we all know what we're doing wrong. It's called gut instinct. (laughs) (laughs) don't ask these rhetorical questions where you want me to alleviate the pain that you're feeling from within because you know what you are doing that's wrong no i'm not going to answer that you know if you're not giving a person an autonomy if you're judging a person if you're um not believing and not trusting of a person if you're thinking the worst of them that's what you're doing as a social worker that's wrong and that's helping to create and strengthen this system Yeah, and I could also add to that from the perspective of social work scholars who, some of whom are now trying to defend this system against abolitionist movements and principles and visions. Uh, They have been coming out and saying, this is going to harm children. This isn't going to provide support for families. You know, we have to rely on this system. As I said already, they ignore all the harms and they pretend like it's actually helping somebody and that we need it. So they ignore the harms. They ignore also what's really important, the possibility that we can build something better. Uh, That is we're not even building anything better. Just have the money infused into our community where we could care for ourselves. Right. We don't have to build anything because if I have the money to pay for a babysitter, if I have the money to order out, if I'm not feeling well and I'm a single parent and can't cook, if I have the money to get a babysitter so that I can go outside and get a break, if I have the money to send my clothes to be laundered versus having to wash them myself after working two jobs all week or a job, right? Whatever it is, yeah. you, you wouldn't need anything else. We only I need agree. something because of the circumstances 
and how money is distributed in this country and how certain communities are, are squeezed for everything that they have. Yes, I agree. When I say build something better, I don't mean build another system. I just mean build a different approach, which includes what you're saying, Joyce. So I, I didn't mean to be, absolutely not build a replacement system. <laughs> Language is everything, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, so not another system. Um, let me jump in with another question. Are there policy efforts that we should be um, in, endeavoring to um, to push forward? Um, and I'm just wondering if there are particular policy efforts we should be focusing on um, and paying attention to, recognizing that what you said, Professor Roberts, and what Joyce has shared too, is that this is a system that cannot be reformed and must be abolished. Is, are there are there efforts at policy advocacy we should be paying attention to? Um, I say yes. Um, I believe in New York, not I believe, in New York, we are pushing for families to know their rights. So it's Miranda, know your rights for families. And the bill number is state 5484. And it's being sponsored by Jabari Bridgeport in the Senate and Latrice Walker in the Assembly. And that's ensuring from the moment um, ACS, the Administration of Children's Services, knocks on someone's door in New York City or any of the other CPS offices throughout New York State, whatever they call themselves in their jurisdiction, um, would have to advise people first of their Fourth Amendment right, their right not to have them into their home, their right to have an attorney, their right to remain silent. We're not asking for new rights in this legislation. We are just asking that the rights that families already have be told to them so that they clear that they have them. Second is confidential reporting, which is the anti-harassment bill. It's to prevent people from calling and reporting people anonymously. Um, we know that most calls for um, to the state central registry that are made anonymously are malicious calls. And while the number of cases that are founded are very low. They're going to be lower now because since that data came out that show it's minuscule, new data is going to come out because we now have a standard to um, indicate someone, which I want to talk about that word indicate for a moment too, um, because indicate is another backdoor mechanism. You will find that they use a lot of backdoor mechanisms throughout this family policing system. Um, indication is a way to circumvent saying guilty, again, without court oversight. It has the same impact as a felony conviction. It is to be taken serious and no case manager who went to school to be a damn dog groomer should be utilizing that much power, right? Anyone who's going to be indicated or, or guilty, it should be going through a court. Uh, a case manager should not have that power. Um, people are weaponizing the system. We know that in my community that CPS, Child Protection Services, ACS, Administration for Children's Services, whatever the hell they call themselves, 
today don't help. So if you are reporting a family, it's not because you have a care or concern. If you have a care or concern, you will personally help to fill that gap and support what the need is. You would not be calling child protection services. If you are calling, you are calling because you are being malicious. And I want it to align for the community the same way it does for a mandated reporter. For mandated reporter calls, they have to give their name. And their name does not trickle down to the family that they called on. And if a person calls confidentially, their name will not trickle down either. But what it will prevent is a person being a repeated caller, caller on a family without the Office of Children and Family Services who mans the state central um, registry hotline um, from knowing. They will know that you've called five times on Caitlin before. So um, that bill number is state 7326. And it again is being sponsored by Jabari Bridgeport and um, Assemblyman Hevesy. And then the last one is informed consent, bill number S4821. And informed consent is Miranda in the hospital setting where they cannot just strip search your bodily fluids for the sole purpose of reporting you to an agency that can't help you even if you do have a substance use problem, right? Even if you are overusing, CPS cannot help you with that. The hospital setting is the right place to administer some support for that. And that's where it should be handled. They should not be farming you out to this third party. It makes no sense to me. And this is what we've been going along with for a long time. But we're going to work together, right, Miss Roberts? And we're going to change this shit. We're not going to allow them to keep disrupting our community. We're going to disrupt their system simply by telling the truth. Family, if a caseworker, which would be rare, comes to their door because they hardly ever engage with wealthy families, they'll call their lawyer. And usually that's enough to drop the whole thing. Uh, if if it, Certainly they won't usually get to the point of actually taking children from the home or maybe even searching the home. So high quality legal defense like family defense units, you know, Brooklyn's, uh, uh, the Bronx, Harlem, community legal services in Philadelphia and others that are multidisciplinary. Here's a place where social workers should be working Absolutely. in family defense and also parent, you know, peer advocates as well. Um, oh, okay. Something saying, am I frozen? I don't think so. Okay, let me keep going. That's what I get for looking at the notes. I should just keep my eye ahead. Okay. Um, and then also, you know, going to what, uh, Joyce was saying about we we don't need to build something. We already have what we we already have the you know the the networks. We just need them to be supported. Uh, another policy would be to take the thirty billion dollars or so that's spent on family policing and divert it to actual concrete cash in people's hands and other kinds of tangible supports that people need. Believe me, we would have no need for family policing if that money 
were diverted into truly caring, supportive, concrete ways of uh, upholding families and caring for families and children. Can I ask everyone who's on here, I have no idea how many people are viewing this fireside chat, but if everyone would just tweet out to Casey Foundation, (laughs) support communities and not systems. Divest in systems, invest in communities. That would be my ask. Besides supporting the legislation, that would be my ask. I think that these foundations need to start feeling the power of what it is that people want mm-hmm. and, and be encouraged to make change because it's going to take many years to change how the government distributes their money. Mm-hmm. But an organization like Casey can change overnight. But we have to tell them we want them to change. And I need your help to let them know what they're doing is not okay. Strengthening a system that doesn't work that's harming families, that's separating children, allowing them to be abused, and then hiring their parents because they can't be employed anywhere else is pretty messed up. And so if you could just support that, tweet Casey and tag me in it, JMAC for Families. Joyce, I feel like that is a wonderful um, segue into another question that we got. How do you recommend starting an abolition movement around the family policing system in an area or a jurisdiction where it hasn't really been started? Well, for me, um, I did a fellowship with Law for Black Lives. And what I learned in that fellowship, not that I didn't already have the desire, but what I learned in that fellowship was to divest in systems and invest in communities. And that everything that I think about should encompass shrinking the system. So Miranda would shrink the system because more families would be protected because they know their rights and they wouldn't have the same outcomes um, if they protected themselves by not letting these people come in and investigate them. Um, Confidential reporting, again, would shrink the system because people who have been calling on other people maliciously would not feel comfortable calling to tell lies on someone if they have to leave their name. And the same thing for informed consent, where they're stopping and frisking people's bodily fluids in hospitals, even though in the criminal setting, it has been outlawed as unconstitutional and a civil rights violation. They are still doing it in the hospital setting, but if they stop, less children would be fed into the system. So each of those things, I believe, shrink the system as well as um, mandated supporting if people didn't have to fear speaking to other people and telling them what it is they lack and asking for assistance, then they wouldn't feel as stressed because they wouldn't be carrying that heavy burden alone. And it would give someone the opportunity to do for them what they have the ability to do, share a resource or a knowledge of a resource. And so all of those things would shrink um, families coming involved with this system. So if you want to start a movement, I think you should start thinking about what you could do what you can contribute to begin to shrink the system and ask others to join you. Yeah, I, I would just add that the work that Joyce has done uh, founding JMAC for Families and then bringing together people, scholars, uh, legislators, family defenders, 
other parents and youths who have been impacted by this system, you know, building a collective network of people to work with to strategize and implement these ways of shrinking the system is a great example. And so whoever asked the question, I'd say go to JMAG for Family's website and look at all that they've been doing. Uh, something else that I've been thinking about, and I, I really hope to work with Ms. Joyce about this, is a network of organizations like hers around the nation that where people who have questions like this, how do you, what do I do? How do I start? How do I build a, 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 an organization can get advice about it? And, and we could be stronger, I think, by sharing our strategies and putting them in place all over the country. Well, she beat me to it. That was going to be my ask for Miss Dorothy Roberts tonight, but <laughs> she's already committed. Look how easy that was. <laughs> I am. Um, don't worry. I told you that. I told you that at your fundraiser. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you're, you're not going to be able to get rid of me now. <laughs> I, I, I'm so blessed to have you. Don't you think that would be a great thing, though? Absolutely. Yes, because there are people, I get emails from people and calls. I mean, my phone, I have so many messages on it, and it's mostly about this that I can't even keep up with them. But people who, you know, heard me talk on a radio show or something, and they wanted, like the person who asked the question, you know, they want to know, how can I start something in my city because we don't have what you have in New York. We don't have what you have in Philadelphia. I, even in Philadelphia, I think we could be more strongly connected. You know, there's various people, but we could form more of a collective effort. I think that would be super powerful. And also for legislation at the national level, like abolishing the Adoption Safe Families Act, you know, where it would be helpful to have a national campaign. And I'm not saying that these things aren't going on, but I think working together, we could make them even stronger. Especially like um, while when I started doing Miranda, Carol Ammons from Chicago reached out to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know who she was initially. I had to Google her, right? And then I'm like, okay. And so, you know, I contact her back and they started doing Miranda. We shared with them our um, our paperwork so that they didn't have to start from scratch, but they could just tweak it to work for the Illinois area. And so I would like to see something like that happen across states where everyone's pushing for Miranda. Everyone's pushing for confidential reporting. Everyone's pushing at the same time, a, a, a very large collective of all asking for the same thing so that it's very cohesive. Okay. We're going to work on a national campaign. Okay. Yes, from your All mouth right. to God's ears. All right, <laughs> to your ears, because we're going to do it together. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious, too. Serious. But I do have a question for her. Um, where do people get your phone number? I don't know where the hell they get my phone number. I thought your phone number was a secret. No, it's not. A, I'm I'm a professor. I I thought I was the only one who had your number. <laughs> no, oh, no, 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 no. Let's make this clear. You have my cell phone number. Oh, this is another phone. 
my <laughs> university office number. Ah, okay. Yeah, you are, special. <laughs> you are special. I'm talking about what you can get off the University of Pennsylvania website. Well, I don't know. And People got my cell phone number and I don't even know where the hell they get it from. I, I don't know. And I'm like, I'm not changing my number because I've had it for 21 years. Me too. I haven't, I've, I haven't given it to him. Don't look at me, Joyce. <laughs> me neither, Joyce. Cats already out the bag. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> so we are running up against time, believe it or not. Uh, this has been so such a powerful conversation. I would love to just invite each of you, um, since we're imagining, um, you know, and looking forward and imagining what could be, um, what are your final final thoughts on what you imagine um, this movement to to be? No, you uh, you want me to go first, huh? You should have the last word anyway. <laughs> so, uh, I, I have a, I imagine that it is going to keep growing, and that uh, we are going to contest the naysayers that are. Uh, and haters and backlash people that are coming out of the woodwork now. And we are going to keep building this stronger and stronger. We're going to have victories that we're going to be able to celebrate. And we are going to, as Ms. McMillan said, chip away, shrink, dismantle. And we are going to be proving that and implementing a radically different way of truly supporting families and caring for children. And I believe that can happen. I, 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 I don't, I think it's going to be a long struggle to really radically change our society, which would be what we really need. But I take inspiration from the kind of work that Joyce is doing that is dismantling, 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 building up community networks that truly care for families and children. And I think we can see those victories in our lifetime, right? That that will inspire the next generation to keep going until we completely get rid of the idea that the way to care for children is to take them from their families. That just is unimaginable. People would say, what if people used to think that? That that is idiotic. <laughs> that must have been there you idiotic. idiots. And <laughs> we won't have to worry about those kinds of punitive approaches. We will have a society that truly keeps children safe because we have supportive families. Yes, that 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 should kind of be it, really. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, change gonna come. Oh, there we go. Come on, Joy. <laughs> come on, Joy. Oh, yes, it is. Uh oh. Listen, I'm not a singer, but I'm just saying. <laughs> we reveal on this. Um, truth to power, right? Truth changes narratives. Yes. It changes hearts and it changes minds. But I, I guess if I have to say something closing, I would say support change. Mm-hmm. Yes. Support yeah. change. Support yeah. JMAC for families. Yes. Follow JMAC for families on every media thing there is. Um, buy 
Dorothy Roberts book, um, torn apart, read it, so cover to cover, br bring it to every event. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So many thanks to you, Professor Roberts, to you, Joyce McMillan, for being with us today and sharing your wisdom. We are forever in your debt for spending this time with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.